Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. And if you're a guest, we welcome you here to Christ Covenant. I'm Seth Hammond, the lead pastor. And to start us out, I, uh, I was told about an example that happened years ago. Uh, there was a, a, a man who had just joined his church. And uh, as he was in the process of joining, he had started a diet. And he hired this dietitian to, to coach him along and making sure that he was uh, upholding to the proper diet. And this particular diet was interesting. Uh, the, the coach was telling him, you don't need to eat protein and carbs at the same meal. And so this young man, he, he chose not to eat protein and carbs uh, at the same meal, but he split it up and he ended up seeing a lot of success. He, he, he lost some weight and he thought, man, everybody needs to know about this particular diet. And so as he was interviewing with the pastor to join the church, he told the pastor his experience of all the, the weight loss that he had as of late. And, he, and then he mentioned to the pastor, Pastor, everybody in your church, including you, uh, you need to do this diet. I'm telling you, it will change your life. It will be, uh, you'll see a dramatic change in your life in, in, a, in a good way, a transformation. And he said, so what I would encourage you to do, Pastor, is not only you yourself do it, but I would encourage you when... Anybody who ever joins this church, tell them that this is part of the requirement of being a part of this church is to, is to do this diet and to be on this diet. Well, right after that, the pastor looked at him and said, hey, have you ever read the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? The man said, well, yeah, pastor, I have. It's a great miracle. And he said, well, did you know that in that miracle, uh, Jesus gave both protein and carbs, fish and bread in the same meal? And that silenced the man. <laughs> I bring that, that example up because this is the kind of thing that was happening in the days of Paul and the days of the Colossians. Uh, the, the, the church of Colossae, they had these false teachers that would come into their church and they would say that in order for you to have a true, rich, spiritual experience with the Lord, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to do these certain things. And then you will arrive in, a, in, a, in, in great spirituality with Jesus. You'll be a great Christian if you do these things. Well, these were the dangers that, that Paul was addressing in our particular passage this morning. So look now in Colossians chapter two. I'll be reading verses 16 through 23 as we close out chapter two this morning. I'll look at the ESV translation. Verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. When Paul wrote these words, he was referring to three dangers that were creeping into the church at Colossae. 
He was talking about that of legalism. Then he mentioned that of mysticism. And then he ended the chapter with talking about asceticism. So we're gonna look at all three dangers that can easily creep into a church. The first thing that Paul mentions in verses 16 and 17 is that of legalism. Now, many of you have heard about what legalism is. It is the religion of human achievement. It argues that true spirituality is based on Jesus plus works, and then you will have a true, full Christian experience. There are three types of legalists that we need to be mindful of. The first type is the legalist who says that you need to believe in Jesus and do good works in order to be a Christian. When I think of this kind of legalist, I think about the rich young ruler who said, I've got to believe in the Lord and then do certain things in order to be a Christian. That's the, one, the first type of legalist. The second group of legalists would say that you would have to believe in Jesus and the Bible and other traditional rules or man-made traditions. You know, and I, as I think about that type of legalist, I think about the Pharisees. You remember all those occurrences when the Pharisees were challenging Jesus on the Sabbath day and they were making up all these different rules regarding the Sabbath of what you can and can't do? That's what a legalist does. They add to the scriptures and they make up rules in which everybody must follow to be a true Christian. The third type of legalist is, would say that you must obey God and then once you're a believer and you follow Jesus, then you have to continue to do good things in order to gain favor with God, in order to make him happy. If you just follow all of these rules, then you will make God happy. Uh, That is another class of legalism that we need to be mindful of. I like what Webster said about legalism. They define legalism as a strict or excessive conformity that is achieved by a strict adherence to precise laws. As I think about legalism today, I think about certain things that have happened in the history of the church. There are denominations that would say you have to believe in Jesus and be baptized in order to be saved. There are denominations that say you must read the King James Version only. Thee and thou, my friends, King James only. You preach from the King James, you read from the King James. That is it. There are are people that say that. There are some denominations that say you cannot have musical instruments in the worship service. That goes against the word of God. Well, the word I read talks about lyres and harps and stringed instruments. There are other groups that would even say, you know, you, you have to really watch what you wear on Sundays. You, you, you must wear a suit and tie everywhere you go or, or, or you'll, you'll be in trouble. You won't be honoring God. Suit and ties are fine, but when you make it a requirement, that's a man-made requirement. What Paul is getting at here is just as we've experienced in the church uh, throughout the, the, the ages, Paul is saying there are legalists among you who are adding to the scriptures and you've got to be mindful of them. And there were two types of of issues or topics that these legalists were emphasizing. And that that revolved around dieting and days. In verse 16, Paul said, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. There were those in the church of Colossae who were saying, we need to go back to the Old Testament way of doing things and all those dietary rules and regulations they had in place. 
They would say, if you go back to, uh, to Leviticus chapter 11, you'll read all about the, the clean foods and the unclean foods. And we are to cleanse in ourselves by eating the clean foods and that would make us more holy. It would make us, it would make us a stronger uh, believer in the Lord. Uh, the Old Testament did categorize these types of foods in clean and unclean. And a Jew would say you could eat certain foods and you couldn't eat certain foods. The problem though is that in the, when the New Covenant came, the New Testament came, Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Testament laws. And in Mark chapter seven, we read that he declared all food, food to be clean. Mark chapter seven, verse 18 says, Jesus said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Right here, Jesus he fulfilled the law and he declared all foods clean. Later in 1 Corinthians 8, verse eight, Paul said this about food. He said, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. What Paul was getting at is, is you know, there's not all of these rules and regulations that we have anymore like they used to have in the old covenant days and the Jewish days. Uh, you're now free to eat what you wanna eat. Now within reason, right? <laughs> we, we don't wanna be gluttonous where we eat whatever is in front of us and we gain a bunch of weight. We gotta be careful of that. But what Paul was getting at is eat food in moderation and don't be so caught up into these types of things. So dieting was a big deal uh, to God's people and these false teachers came in and said, you have to follow this diet to a T. But the other issue they were bringing up was certain days that they had to observe Go back to verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. A festival was one of those annual celebrations that the Jewish people observed. I think about like that of Pentecost or the Passover. I think about the festival of lights or the feast of lights or the feast of booths and tabernacles. These were all the certain kind of ceremonial days that the people of God would observe on an annual basis. And these false teachers in Colossae were seeping into the churches saying, we've got to return back to the Old Testament days and we need to observe these days. Because if you observe these days, then you'll be a better Christian if you just do these things. They also observe new moon celebrations when they read Isaiah chapter one and they emphasize the Sabbath. But the problem with these people is they made more rules towards the Sabbath that weren't included in scripture. Let me give you a couple of those rules. One rule was you can't take a bath on the Sabbath because if you did, water would spill out of the tub and it would force you to, to work and clean up that water. Another rule was that you can't pick up a chair and move a chair on the Sabbath because if you move the chair and if it accidentally hit dirt floor, it would, it, would, it would stir up some dirt and you would have to sweep it away. You can't do that. One of the worst rules I ever heard that these people were teaching was that an older woman could not look at herself in a mirror because if she saw a gray hair, she would be tempted to pluck it out. I kid you not, these were rules that they came up with that they said, these are Sabbath rules in which you are to follow. And if you follow these rules, you'll be a much better believer in the Lord. You see, what Paul was getting at here is he's saying, don't buy into the lie of legalism. Instead, focus on Christ. 
After all, all these things that the Old Testament Jews did, they were merely a shadow pointing to Jesus himself. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We all know what a shadow is. It's a shade on the ground that's caused by an object blocking the light. Now, how silly would it be if we'd spent all of our time just focusing on the shadow when the object is right there standing in front of us? That's what was happening to these people in Paul's day. They were too enamored with the shadow that they forgot the actual object. They forgot the head of the church. They forgot Jesus himself. The reality was not in the shadow, but the reality was in Jesus. You see, legalism is dangerous. It thinks that God accepts us for what we do or what we don't do. But here's the reality of how God accepts us. He accepts us because of Jesus. Our sin is placed on the cross, on Jesus. He took it. He bore our sin. He made it his very own. His goodness and his righteousness is placed on us. That's how we're declared righteous with God. That's how we're made right with God. That's how we earn God's favor. It's nothing we do. It's what he has done. And that's what Paul was getting at. Legalism is extremely dangerous if you buy into the lie that Jesus plus something else is everything. It's Jesus. That's why if you go back to verse eight of Colossians two, it says, Paul said, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Paul's saying here, don't focus so much on human tradition that you miss out on the big picture of who Jesus is. Spend your, get, your focus on Christ and don't get so enamored and caught up into the legalistic functions of the day. Legalism can harm us all. So we need to be mindful and watchful of it. The second danger that Paul talked about here is that of mysticism. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up with, without reason by his sensuous mind. What was going on here is that the, the people of Colossae, the Colossians, there were certain people that would come in and say, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to worship angels because the angels are the ones who will reveal to you something new about God. And in order for you to fully know who God is, you need to ask that he will give you visions from his angels. He will teach you something new so that you can experience him in a richer and fuller way. That's what mysticism is. Mysticism is the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. It is the belief that spiritual reality is perceived from, is, is not perceived from human intellect, but it's found in our feelings. How are you feeling? The mystic would say. How does God make you feel? How are you experiencing God in a whole new way? That's what mysticism does. And in, in Paul's day, there were people who truly believed that you need to worship Jesus and angels. Believe it or not, in Asia Minor, it, 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 it ended finally in 739, but all the way up to 739, people worshiped the angel Michael. I kid you not. 
People claim that Michael had these supernatural gifts and so they worshiped Jesus and the archangel Michael until 739 BC or AD. Tragic. You know what those people forgot? They forgot that angels worship Jesus. Revelation 5 tells us it's the angels who worship Jesus. They bow down to Jesus. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness with Satan? What happened after he, he basically put Satan in his place? Who came to him? The angels. They came to minister to him. They came to serve him. So angels worship Christ. They serve Christ. We are not called to worship angels. We are called to worship Christ alone. But unfortunately, there were people in Paul's day that said, no, it's Jesus and angels because angels are the ones who will reveal to you a special uh, vision from God. Now, today, we may not have people who worship angels, but there are people who try to learn the secrets of the spiritual world. I know of people, believe it or not, who have dabbled into tarot reading. Zodiac. I've met people at the Air Force Base, who are, do, who are believing in Norse pagan religion, one of the fastest growing religious groups in the Air Force, and I've heard in the nation, rather, is that of Wiccan. People are enamored with the spiritual world, and unfortunately, when you begin to get so enamored with and caught up and you don't have a biblical worldview, you get lost and you end up, you end up going into a dark, dark place. That's what Paul was saying here. These people were puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Notice that word, sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. They were shifting their focus from Christ to their experience. I have a lot of friends who are charismatic, who are from the church of God denomination. They're great people. But sometimes I get concerned that they are shifting their focus from the word of God to their experience. It's all, it's not all, but a lot of times they talk about their spiritual experience, how they've arrived and how, how they're filled with the spirit and they could start speaking in tongues and they could start healing people and they could start seeing visions and prophecy and, and it's just one thing after another. Well, what really concerns me about the charismatic movement is the shift from being word-centric to then feeling-centric and experience-centric. That's what mysticism can do. It can lead you astray, and all of a sudden, it becomes more about the experience than about the truth. A lot of times, we leave church saying, well, how did that make you feel? How was your experience? What did you get out of worship? What was that experience like? Now, although we mean well when we ask ourselves that question, I think the better question is, how do we serve the Lord today when we came to worship? How prepared were we when we came to sit under the preaching of the word or the teaching of the word or as we, as we talked to other believers? Mysticism, there are some good things about it in that it's good that we want to seek to know God more and experiencing him in a, in a full and rich way. But it can be really dangerous when we begin to Shun the word and focus more on the experience. There's a great article I just want to briefly unpack for you note takers in the room. There's a great article on the Gospel Coalition from a guy named Jared Wilson, and he talks about Christian mysticism. 
And he says there's four things that are good about Christian mysticism, but you gotta remember these four things. First is, a Christian mystic is contemplative, but biblical. In other words, when we meditate, we meditate on the word of God and we meditate on his attributes. We meditate on who he is. We are contemplative, we meditate, but we always do so with the lens of the Bible. You know, I, I hear a lot about psychologists today that talk about mindfulness, how you've got to empty yourself. And it's all about, you know, thinking good thoughts and mindfulness. Now, honestly, my friends, Christianity, we have a discipline called Christian meditation. And it's not the meditation that you see Rafiki on the Lion King doing. It's meditation where we read the scriptures and we we pour into it and we meditate on the word. We think about it. We let it change our minds and our hearts because it's the word. That's what true mindfulness is. It's not emptying ourselves. It's filling up ourselves with God's word. So a Christian mystic would say, I'm going to be contemplative, but as I'm meditating on the word of God, I do so with a biblical foundation and biblical lens. The second thing a Christian mystic does is they focus on the spiritual but it's also Christocentric. In other words, it's good for us to desire to know who the Holy Spirit is. It's good for us to want to know him more. It's good for us to want to experience him and be filled by the Holy Spirit. These are good things, but it needs to be anchored in Christ. Because as you think about the Holy Spirit's primary role, particularly in John 14 and 16, it is to point us to who? to Jesus. The, whole, the Holy Spirit teaches us God's word and he leads us to Christ. So yes, we want, we should desire to know more about the Holy Spirit, but it shouldn't be about how I feel in my experience. It should be about how does the Holy Spirit direct me more to Jesus? A Christian mystic also is theologically exploratory, but not innovative. Theologically exploratory, but not innovative. I like this. Let me read what he said here. The things are the Bible are simple enough for a child to understand, right? We have a lot of children who are Christians because they know I'm a sinner, saved by grace. I love Jesus. I've given my life to him. That's simple. That's a simple truth. But yet the gospel, the Bible is so deep, so complex that even angels long to gaze at it. Romans 11, which we sang earlier, how deep and how wide and how far and how unsearchable is the wisdom of God. In other words, it's good for us to yearn to know more and more and more about him. And by the time we die, we're gonna merely scratch the surface. You may read the Bible over and over and over again. And by the end of your life, you're still gonna need a whole lot more because God is so big and we are so small. And so again, we need to be exploring who God is. But here's the thing, but not be innovative. What do I mean by that? While we may discover things new to us about God, we will never discover things new. While we may discover things new to us about God, we will never discover things new. We are free to dive deep into the things of God, but we're never free to invent them. We are free to dive deep into the things of God, but we're never free to invent the things of God. We are to behold the complexities of old ideas and beware of the conspiracy of new ideas. Whenever you hear a pastor say, I've got a new idea for you, do one of these. <laughs> I'm serious. We don't add to the word. 
The word of God is complete. We don't need any more gospels. We don't need any more of Paul's letters. We don't need any more of Moses's law. We don't need any more prophecy. All we have is right here. This is enough. It is sufficient. It is complete. So again, as we want to explore who God is, we go here. We don't say, God, give me a vision and all of a sudden I'm gonna find out something new about about the Bible or, or, or add it on to the Bible. No, we don't ask the Lord to add to the scriptures. We ask the Lord to explain the scriptures as we seek to know more about him. And finally, a Christian mystic is experiential, but not emotional. Worship that is unbiblical and sensual is wrong. When you're just coming in of how does that make me feel? I wanna get riled up. I want my immersion stirred up. You know, I think it's, it's good to feel the full range of emotion. You know, after all, I think we Presbyterians, sometimes we need a little umph in us, you know? I mean, a lot of us had some umph last night and it was more anger than anything. I was angry. My kids were like, dad. And I was like, oops, yeah, God is omnipotent. He's right here and I'm convicted right now. We do need a little umph, right? But here's the thing experiential but not emotional meaning. Yes, it's good and right to want to experience God in a full way. And your emotions should get stirred up, the full range of emotions, but it needs to be checked. It needs to be checked with the word of God. To know Christ is a wonderful thing, but be careful to allow your emotions to lead you away from the truth. Two dangers, legalism and mysticism, but there's a third danger that Paul wrote about, and that is asceticism. Asceticism is one who lives a life of rigorous self-denial. It's making ourselves less so that we can gain more of Christ. He must become greater, I must become less. It's denying the temporary things of the world to gain insight into the eternal things. It's really treating your body harshly so that you can become holy. It's denying yourself physical things so that you can want more of Christ. That's what asceticism is. Unfortunately, the teachers of, of these false teachers of the days of, of the Colossians, they believed in Gnosticism where the body was evil and the spirit was good. And so they said, you've got to deny your body. And if you deny it, then you'll be holier if you do those things. You know, as I thought about asceticism, I thought about the monastic movement, you know, monks and nuns, these monks and nuns in history. After the early church, so when the early church happened, all these Christians got killed for their faith. And in martyrdom, it, it grew the, the Christian church because people were willing to give their lives. Well, well, after that kind of died down and persecution stopped, uh, you know, to the extreme that it was happening in the early church days, monasticism replaced martyrdom as the way to really experience true mature faith in the Lord. And what monasticism is, is monasticism, it promoted self-denial, a radical devotion to Christ and radical isolation. The founder of the monastic movement, his name was Anthony. And it was between 250 and 356 AD. He lived 106. So by the age of 20, he read the rich young ruler and he said, for me to to almost reach perfection in this life, I've got to sell everything I have and give it to the poor. That's what he did. He was a wealthy man and he ended up reading the rich young ruler and he ended up selling everything he had. And guess what he did? He went and he moved to the the desert and he lived in a cave. Why did he do that? Because he said, well, Jesus, he was in the wilderness. He, He was in the desert and he withdrew himself from the world and he fought Satan. So he said, so I've got to withdraw myself from the world and I've got to go to this cave and that's where I'll fight Satan. 
I kid you not, he lived there for over 20 years. <clears throat> and people came to him and they were seeking wisdom. There was a movement that Anthony started called the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers. And they were people who just beat their bodies up and, and fasted all the time and got really skinny and thin because they wanted to rely on the Lord. There was a monk after Anthony. His name was Simon Stylite. And he loved Jesus so much that he wanted to make extreme sacrifices to his body. I kid you not, Simon Stylites did two crazy things in his life. The first thing was he, he dug this huge hole and he put his body in the hole and then he asked people to fill it back with dirt up to his head. And he did that because he said, I don't wanna be tempted by this world and I'm gonna be stuck here and I'm gonna sacrifice my body. Well, that lasted a day. Realize, well, that's dumb. It's just like when you're on the beach and you ask your kids, you dig this hole and you ask them to fill it up with sand and then you're like stuck and you're thinking, why did I do this? That's what happened to Simon Stylites. Well, the second thing he did was even more extreme. He built this pole that was 60 feet tall and he got up on the pole and he lived there over 30 years. And he had people bring him food, but the whole reason was he's got to separate from the world beneath him and he's got to be closer to heaven. That's why he lived on a pole. I mean, some of these monks did some crazy outlandish things to their bodies. There was one group of people called the Bosky people who lived like animals and they only ate grass. The Ammon people decided that if you love Jesus, you should never take a bath. That's disgusting. One monk tried to keep and obey Jesus's injunction to his disciples when the disciples were falling asleep and he was about to get arrested and he said, keep watch. One, one monk read that and he said, I gotta stay awake. He stayed awake for 14 days. The Benedictine rule, which ended up starting the Western monks and movement, they had the rules that if you join a monastery, you would have to make a vow of poverty, of chastity, and you would have to obey the lead monk, the abbot. And then the Cistercian monks, they made vows of silence. You couldn't talk. They made vows of dieting and they stressed manual labor. Many monks, they, they, they would claim that if you would treat your body harshly and deny yourself things, then you would become holier. You'd become more and more like Christ because you must become less and he must become more. I give up all for the sake of, of, of obeying Christ and following him was their motto. Now, before we, or as we continue to, to bash the monks, I wanna say that there were good things about them and about that movement. You know, number one is they, they actually started the world missions movement. They were the first group of people that sent missionaries across the world. They also translated many of our Old and New Testament translations. And I wanna, I wanna ask you this hard question. When's the last time you fasted? When's the last time you stayed up late at night praying for people or praying for revival? No, the monks did this. So I do think their heart overall was in the right place. You know, one, one monk said that the aim of the desert fathers and mothers, those of Anthony, they, their lives was not asceticism. That was not their aim, but, but their aim was God. They went without sleep because they were watching for the Lord. They did not speak because they were listening to God. They fasted because they were fed by the word of God. And so, yes, there were a lot of dangers and bad things about the monastic movement, but there's a lot of things that we can learn from them. Some good things that took place. But here's the reality. When it comes to asceticism, the main question we must ask ourselves is this. Is Christ being exalted when I do these things or am I being exalted? 
Is asceticism killing sin or is it feeding sin? That's the big question you have to ask yourself. Whenever you fast, whenever you take a day of silence and solitude away, which by the way, all of us need to do once a year, you know, I'm not saying it's a requirement. I'd be a legalist. But what I'm saying is it's important to get away and to pray and to process and to spend time with the Lord and, and be away from the busyness of life and reflect upon him and ask him, Lord, what would you have me do this coming year for you? Those things are good. Silence and solitude are very important that the monks have taught us to do. But the reality is, is it glorifying Christ or is it glorifying you? And unfortunately, in Paul's day, it was glorifying the people. It was elevating them and not elevating Christ. You know, as I think about the alternative to legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, I think about the three things we focus on here at Christ's Covenant. Our mission as a church is to reach and equip people of all ages, children all the way to senior citizens. We wanna reach, reach people of all ages and we wanna train them to do three things, to know the truth, to love Jesus and everyone, and to serve people everywhere. So we want people to know the truth, meaning know the scriptures and don't add to the scriptures like a legalist does, know the scriptures. We also want people to love Jesus and to love others. You know, don't just focus on the experience of love, 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 how it makes me feel, but truly love who Jesus is and love others. And then we want to challenge you to serve people everywhere. And the way we serve is we, we grow by, by doing the spiritual disciplines. You don't beat up your body on purpose like an ascetic would do, but instead you, you learn to fast, you learn to pray, you learn to read the word, you learn to share your faith, you learn to worship the Lord, you learn to serve. These are all ways in which we can grow in our relationship with the Lord. And again, as you think about these three dangers, think about the three positive things that we promote here at the church is to know the truth, love Jesus and others, and to serve people everywhere. And if you do those things, yes, you will grow in your faith. But at the end of the day, who is the reason why we're here? Jesus. Who do we focus on? Him. So keep your gaze and your focus on Jesus and him alone. And don't, don't get caught up into these dangerous things that can easily creep into our churches. Let's pray.